Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is The Solo Collective, and I'm Rebecca Seal. One of the themes which seems to recur quite often in these conversations is taking time for yourself, stopping work and putting it to one side and having a break, which are things which are really, really important to me and and should be to all of us. So I'm thrilled to be having a conversation with the man who has really influenced the way that I think about rest Alex Sujan Kimpang is a technology forecaster and a consultant and an author. He's written several books, of which one was really, really important to me, particularly when I was doing the research for my book, but also just in my general thinking about how we approach work and the rest of our lives. And it's called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. Alex kind of had the revelation which led to the writing of Rest, when he was on sabbatical from his job in Silicon Valley at Microsoft. And he was over in Europe and he just didn't have the same level of stress and expectation on him that he had normally in his job. And yet he realised that he was being more productive, but also just felt better in general. And he really wanted to kind of interrogate that idea and figure out why that was happening and if it was really happening, if it was true. And... That kind of underpins his whole philosophy on rest is that it is true. If you poke at it, the idea holds firm that if you rest and you're not super stressed out and you're not kind of hovering on the edge of burnout, then you generally are more productive as well as being happier, which is kind of like the holy grail. And I'm sort of surprised that it's so difficult for us to get our heads around it as an idea, but it is there and it's backed up by a lot of study and science. One of the things that I really like about Alex is that because of his book, we'd been having chats on Twitter about all sorts of things, parenting, how to juggle kids and work. And I feel like I've kind of semi-adopted him as a colleague, which is, when you think about it, one of the really lovely things about solo work, that you can really choose the people who you have in your working life and you can decide whose opinions you want to bring on board and whose thinking and whose ideas. And I've really enjoyed the kind of occasional interactions that Alex and I have. This, however, is the first time that we've ever spoken in real life, as it were. Everything we've done so far has been on social media or via email. So it's a real pleasure to make his actual acquaintance. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation. How did we get to this point, like culturally? Because it's so, I think it's just so important for solo workers to understand what the layers on top of them are in terms of why we've been taught to think about work as this thing which has to occupy so much of our lives. So I think that it has long been a kind of undercurrent in our thinking about 
sort of work and in the 20th century careers, right? You know, I think in, in the last couple generations, what we have seen is a change driven partly by technology, you know, the ability now to carry our offices around in our pockets has meant that work has become accessible to us or we have become accessible to work in ways that were unimaginable 50 years ago. And as a consequence of that, the idea that you can be always accessible and always on and have control over your time in ways never thought possible has turned into an imperative that you must be always on and always accessible. We've also got the model of the career has itself also changed pretty dramatically. Right, 50 years ago, General Motors and General Electric, the biggest companies in America, were both run by guys named Charlie Wilson, who had you know, who had started in the mailroom or in the, you know, the kind of training company training program and worked their ways up the company for, you know, like 30 years or so. And since the 1970s, the rise of new models of careers from particularly the tech industry and finance that teach us that, you know, the way you become successful is to become super rich really, really quickly. That you have a narrow window in which you can make your fortune before you're tech skills become obsolete before you get the next uh, you know the next global meltdown and that success is essentially a race against time in which you apply your skills through herculean long hours this is what success looks like now it's not the charlie wilsons it's elon musk talking about working 130 hour weeks and so at the high level we've got all of that stuff sort of telling us that this is how you are successful we also have at the lower level the fact that all of our friends are doing it. And so those of us who come at this after you know going to university have seen academics and teachers who no longer are able to live the sort of reflective life that professors got to in years past. They're just as time rushed and crunched as everybody else. And so we are never exposed to alternatives. And I think that the challenge for us as solo workers partly is to, to find and to recognize and to act on the opportunities to back away from this model that says that basically in order to do good work, we have to put our health at risk. We have to put our relationships at risk. And that it is actually possible using this freedom to discover other ways of working that are better and more sustainable and also better for everybody else as well as for ourselves. I mean, brilliant. I just, I'm, I'm evangelical about what you, what you're saying in exactly the same way. Um, it's just that you're really good at saying it really clearly. <laughs> so what practices, what practical things can solo workers do to, to institute some of this stuff into their own miniature organisations of one? In theory, we have great freedom to kind of set our own hours. I mean, maybe slightly less so if you work for an organization who've got particular ideas about what working hours should look like. But many remote workers, mm -hmm. particularly now, post-pandemic, this is a moment where we could see, and I think we will see, really radical change in how work works. How can we empower individual solo workers with skills that let them actually act on this stuff and not like me and sit here going, I know all this stuff, but I don't actually do it. <laughs> So, you know, I think what I would recommend is that the practices that work for companies, I think, also work for individuals. The practices around, for example, making meetings really short, 
that is a terrific discipline and it frees up time for yourself. I think it also shows a degree of respect for your clients and for their time that nobody dislikes. Also, nobody dislikes short meetings, you know, particularly when they're well-organized and they have sort of clear decisions at the end. That shows you've really got it together as an operator. I think that the opportunities for being thoughtful about how you use your technologies that's another thing that for all of us who have to kind of figure out our own infrastructures, you know, whatever combinations of devices, you know, online services, et cetera, that sort of that we use, being thoughtful about how we can use those in order to maximize our time rather than spending the maximum amount of time using them. And then I think that having routines turns out to be a lot more important than we recognize. And the pandemic maybe has taught us that when you completely blow up people's ability to have routines that you know rest on a foundation of things like being able to send your children to school and having them out of the house and among their friends for you know much of the day, that life gets really, really, really complicated. You know, I think one of the things that, that the pandemic has taught all of us and that we all should remember is that ordinary life turns out to require an immense amount of energy to kind of construct and maintain these infrastructures that allow kids to be educated and have activities and have, you know, and have other things just not completely spin off the rails every single day. And it turns out Parents, particularly women, particularly mothers, spend an enormous amount of energy just keeping all that stuff going under normal circumstances. And what we've seen when it breaks down is just how catastrophic that actually is. So when you are working for yourself, and I've gone through this myself, right, you think your first thought is, I'm out of the office now, my time is my own, I've got this freedom. And your first thought might be that you don't want to have a routine because like that holds you down and it, you know, like makes you less creative. Well, in point of fact, routines are a foundation for being super productive and also for being super creative. And as humans, they're things that, uh, that, uh, that are really good for us. And I think that the final thing I would recommend is particularly if you are someone who is moving into working on your own, after having done the rat race, you know, having worked in companies for years, I would say you've got a lot of experience, right? You've probably seen a lot about how companies or projects work well and also how they don't. And that your challenge now is not to figure out how to outwork the other guy or you know how to work according to sort of some mythical standard of you know Elon Musk like greatness there is a challenge in figuring out how to do 5 days worth of work in 4 days you know or maybe even 3 that is every bit as engaging that's every bit as demanding as putting in 12 hour days you know and building, you know, building structures that support that requires just as much creativity and dedication as like allowing it all to munge together, you know, so that work and life and family, et cetera, like become this one seamless thing that frankly tend to get crushed under like the giant Monty Python animated foot of, you know, work demands that, you know, figuring out how to do in six hours what the other person needs 12 hours to do. That is a really substantial challenge. And 
if you can figure out how to do that, and you probably can, then you will you'll do better work, you'll be more creative, you'll have a more sustainable life. You would be foolish not to try it. You have nothing to lose but overwork and the absence of free time in your life. I think that's what I'd say. That is so fascinating because when I left The Observer, so I worked at The Observer newspaper for six years as a journalist, as soon as I started working by myself for myself, I suddenly realized how much more I was getting done because I wasn't in an office and I didn't have all of those time sucks that kind of come with an office. Unfortunately, I did not use that realization to work less. <laughs> Instead, I worked more. And actually, by the time I came to the point of wanting to write solo, I was working six or seven days a week. And Mm-hmm. unsurprisingly, was quite miserable because I had no other life. And it was only at that moment that I began to kind of ask questions about whether whether I had it the right way round and to think about whether mm-hmm. this was actually the life that I wanted, a life that really involved almost nothing but work. But it took years to untangle this stuff because I just think the cultural messaging is so strong. The primacy of hard work and And the primacy Mm -hmm. of presenteeism, like I find solo presenteeism so interesting because I force myself to be present. Like presenteeism operates within my business, which is just me. There's nobody watching. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet it's still kind of really difficult to pull myself out of. Now, I do do a four day week, so I have got there to a certain extent, but it's taken 12 years and I'd I'd like it not to take that long for other people (laughs) because... The benefits, as yes. you say, are so are so enormous. It maybe doesn't need to take 12 <laughs> years. You know, maybe it needs to take one. I mean, the thing is that I look at people like Charles Darwin or Beethoven or, you know, really, really smart people, right? They all discover this stuff the hard way. And there are things that are easy to describe, but which you kind of have to sort of learn through muscle memory or absorb into your bones. And I think that this seems to be one of them. And I think that part of that is you've got to learn it that way in order to have the confidence to practice it in a world that is telling you that what you're trying to do is exactly backwards. That in a world in which you are encouraged to try to maximize your income, you know, sort of to say yes to every project rather than coming at it from another angle, right? Thinking about, okay, you know, what's the, what's the minimum amount I need and sort of working to that. And then after that thinking, all right, you know, do I really need to do more in a world in which, you know, you always have these concerns in the back of your mind about if you say no to a project, will this opportunity evaporate? Will the client ever come back? Learning how to resist those pressures and having enough faith in yourself to do that is a really, really challenging thing. So I think that the fact that it took you 12 years means you're completely <laughs> average on this, you know, or if it's not that like you were, you know, or if you were really dumb, it's that this is for so many people the way that it goes. And the fact that you're trying to, you're trying to reduce that for other people is, you know, is terrific. And I think that the, you know, for me, the message is if you're not already doing this, if it feels like a challenge, You're exactly right. And, you know, you're exactly on track. And it's never too late, though, to start. 
So I, I feel as though we've made a strong case for working less because it's good for you to work mm-hmm. less. But one of the other things I think is really powerful in, in what you write about is the effect of rest, not only on the rest of your life, but actually on the work. And mm-hmm. yeah, so can you kind of expand on that idea a little bit? Sure. So there are wonderful studies looking at like the lives of thousands and thousands of people over the course of decades that show that doing really basic things like protecting your time and evenings and weekends, when possible, not taking work home with you, going on vacations, actually taking your vacation time, that over the course of decades, this leads to better health health outcomes, both physically and mentally. It seems to have no impact at all on wages, but importantly, it means that you age better and you have both better lives and longer, more sustainable working lives. Coaches have this thing about how you don't build muscle when you're working out, right? You build muscle when you're sleeping. The workout triggers a whole bunch of stuff that allows you to build the muscle, but you need rest time in order for your body to actually sort of respond and kind of do its thing in order to get the benefits of the workout. Likewise, I think creative work, which includes all kinds of stuff, right? It's not just like, you know, people dressed in black and, you know, open offices in Shoreditch, right? Anyone who has worked in any kind of service organization or restaurant or, you know, tried to get a recalcitrant sort of patient dressed and ready for the day has had to exercise a whole bunch of creativity in order to make those things happen. But it turns out that creativity works somewhat the same way and that Having periods of really deep focused work are really essential for being productive, particularly on discrete tasks whose endpoints you can see, right? You can describe them you can describe them pretty well. But that also primes your kind of creative mind to be able to do really interesting things when you give it a rest. And by you know giving your body a rest, turning your attention to other things, you give the creative subconscious an opportunity to look at unanswered questions or or of things that you haven't been able to figure out while you were working, and to actually keep turning over that those ideas, even as your conscious attention is elsewhere. So. This is why in the accounts of creative people, you have lots of stories about they were working intensely hard on these things and they got stuck on this problem. And then not long after they're walking on the beach and they have this aha moment and the solution comes to them. That's the process that I'm describing at work. And really creative people will often design their days so as to maximize the amount of time available for that. The other important thing that really people who are skilled at resting often do is they have really serious hobbies. Hobbies that, you know, can be sometimes physically dangerous like mountain climbing or, you know, time consuming or expensive. And you wonder, you know, these are people who are super ambitious. They're often like in highly competitive areas. So why would they spend all this time on this, doing this stuff? And the answer is that serious hobbies like that when you are really ambitious, are more effective at taking you out of the office than binging Netflix. The other thing is that those kinds of challenging, absorbing activities often allow people to experience some of the same pleasures they have 
at work when it goes really well without the frustrations. And so what that does is help us both recover from work, recover from the trials of work, but also help us get back in touch and remember what it is that we love best about this work when it goes well. And that creates a cycle that I think helps us work more sustainably for longer periods of our lives in a more balanced way that also helps us be more creative. So that's why you ought to take rest seriously. I mean, one of the things I took from from that and what you write about that idea as well is this notion that in a way, these kind of these deep play activities are the things which allow certain individuals to have the success that they have. Like I realized I was thinking about it Mm -hmm. kind of upside down. So I would think, how can that chief executive or novelist or artist or whatever, how can they find time in their week to do a horse riding or mountain biking or playing go or whatever? Mm -hmm. How, how can they find that time? And then I realized, no, it was the, it was the time spent doing those things which was actually enabling their high level of success. The two things were intimately connected and they'd worked that out where I had absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly right. And there is a, there's a fantastic study that backs this up. There was a psychologist named Bernice Idewson who in the 1950s started a project following the lives of 50 scientists in Southern California. She was at UCLA. These people were at Caltech and you know, UCLA and other places. And they included, it turned out, four people who eventually went on to win Nobel Prizes, a bunch of other very you know, high-level folks, and then a second cohort whose careers kind of flamed out and they never lived up to their early promise, even though all of them on day one of this study, pretty much all looked identical, right? They'd all come from top schools. They all looked like they were going to go places. And over the course of the decades, they bifurcate. And it turned out that the thing that separated the high flyers from everybody else was not the number of hours that they spent in the laboratory. It was not their answer on a scale of one to 10, how important is it that you do good work? Didn't play out in terms of like divorce rates. The biggest differentiator turned out to be whether with the high flyers were more likely to continue to engage in athletic activities later in their lives. This being Southern California, that meant a few were surfers. There was a lot of, you know, hiking in the mountains or rock climbing or, you know, things of that sort. And the fascinating thing about it was that the really successful people described themselves as organizing their lives so that they felt they had enough time for both science and this other stuff. The people who were in the other group consistently describe themselves as too time-pressed for hobbies. And so it was not that you were super successful and therefore you had the time for, you know, for this other stuff. It was that you made the time for this other stuff and therefore you were able to do this better work. And so I think that to me was a really convincing piece of evidence that this kind of investment in what look like Activities that take you away from work that are going to compete with work actually in the long run are going to complement and support and sustain us in our efforts to do this kind of work 
that we feel like we're put on this earth to do. You know, and again, a bunch of them started getting into this like later in life, right? You know, they sort of one of the guys who'd started um, who'd started surfing did so like when he was in his late 30s or early 40s or so. You know, which uh, again is a reminder that it's never it actually is never really too late to start this practice and to begin to reap its benefit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what does the practice look like in, in your life? Like how does your solo work kind of play out? Because I think one of the things, and I'm, I ask this of every solo worker I interview for this podcast, I think, you know, it's really important that we talk about what our solo lives look like and what works for us and what doesn't. So maybe could you talk a bit about how your days look now? And maybe if you took any wrong turnings along the way, you know, did you have any moments where it just really wasn't working? Along the way, Rebecca, I feel like I make, you know, I take, I take wrong <laughs> turns every day. Um, so the part that I've got down, I feel like, is when I'm writing the books right? Those days are super structured and I am, you know, mentally really, really focused on that project and nothing else. When I'm writing, I write for about four really solid hours a day. I get up at 5 a.m., I write for two hours, I take the dogs out and then go back, write for a couple more, and then I'm done. And doing that really rigorously lets me finish a book manuscript in roughly a year or so actually really more like four months of really intensive writing. And the rest of it is like trying to sell the project and do all that, do all that kind of stuff. And then the other critical part of, you know, of those days is I almost always have a nap in the afternoon because, you know, you get up super early, you just are tired. Naps also are in the afternoon for me, better for me than like yet one more cup of coffee. And then in the evening, I don't do much work, but the one thing I will do is set up absolutely everything for the next day, right? And that means setting up the coffee. It means like putting the sugar in the mug that I've set out beside the coffee pot, the clothes I'm going to wear, what I'm going to work on. I'll usually have a post-it that has like the three things I want to, uh, sort of, I want to write about the next day. And that's important because number one, it's a way to kind of blackmail my future self into actually getting out of bed at 5 a.m. rather than rationalizing or of turning off the alarm and going back to sleep. I'm not a morning person, and so I need that reinforcement. But the other thing that's important about it is that it means that I make no little decisions at all. The first thing I have to think about is, you know, when I turn on the computer is, how do I finish this sentence? And that means that every piece of, you know, energy and attention that I have can be devoted to 
the work. The other reason that that turns out to be valuable is that it means that overnight my kind of creative subconscious is kind of turning over ideas and sort of continuing to work on stuff because it knows that in the morning I'm going to be sort of taking on this specific thing first. And that sounds kind of mysterious, but it's actually a practice that a lot of people develop and works for them. John Cleese, when he was starting to write you know, comedy sketches when he was at Cambridge, said that he would get stuck on a piece at night and would go to bed. And the next morning, not only did he have an answer to the problem, he couldn't remember why he was stuck in the first place. And that's a, I think that's a, that's a nice illustration of how once we get into these projects, our minds continue working on them, you know, even while we're asleep. But, you know, this is something that you have to kind of keep reinventing all the time. And I think that if you're doing a kind of work that requires learning how to do new things, you are going to have to constantly look at your routines, look at your schedules, and think about how you can adapt them to current conditions. And it's probably never going to be perfect. You know, it's a bit like parenting, right? You know, you've got a certain amount of experience and you do your best. And I think that it is important to try, but also to calibrate your expectations. For me as a parent, if my kids don't die of easily preventable communicable diseases, they don't become child soldiers and they don't, you know, become serial killers, I feel like my work is done, <laughs> right? And I sort of feel somewhat the same way about the work, that this project doesn't have to be absolutely perfect, requiring me to spend enormous amounts of time on it. It has to be the best project I can deliver in the time that I've got. And that turns out for me to be a very liberating thing. And working with that kind of discipline is really, really essential. But figuring out how that discipline translates into, you know, into daily practice is a perpetual challenge. So that's how I do it. A work in progress. Exactly. No. As we all are, and as, you know, and I think if you're lucky, as you will always be. I guess one of the things that I struggle with, and we've talked a little bit about this on Twitter, that my children are much younger than your children. And I guess what I wanted to ask about was how you navigate the kind of competing needs of other mm -hmm. members of the household. Because I think that that is something that I find really hard. I guess a lot of other people will have similar experiences in that there's a sort of swirl of other competing requirements around them. But how do you, how do we navigate that other stuff, all of the other competing requirements and kind of f manage to fit around them? Because where solo workers have great freedom, they often have a lot of other stuff that's not very free at all. I think part of the challenge when you're a solo worker is that the world expects that you can deal with those other kinds of obligations because, you know, I mean, you've got time, right? Or you can, you know, you can organize your time the way that you want. One of the paradoxes of flexible work is that it can actually raise expectations along these lines, that the fact that you are able to work flexibly means that you should be the one who always picks up the kids because I'm stuck in the office. So, you know, obviously I can't do it. So it falls to you. What flexibility often turns into is other people making claims on your time. The things that you are talking about are logistically difficult, but they are also socially difficult, right? I mean, I think that you know having multiple kid pickups, in my experience, pretty much destroys an afternoon. 
you can do a little stuff in the car, like just waiting for, you know, kid number two. But if all you were able to do is like answer a couple quick emails, you're actually ahead of the game. And that's not an unimpressive thing. I think also that, you know, the other thing I would say is that we often think of work-life balance or dealing with these kinds of issues as something that, that plays out like every single day. And that every 24-hour period should be a little gem of, you know, balanced activities. And the reality is that when you've got small children who, you know, who are delightful and wonderful and, but, you know, are incredible time sinks and will demand every piece of time and attention and energy that you offer up and then insist on a lot more, that under those circumstances, I think we need to be a little gentler with our ideas about work-life balance, that this balance is something also that, that can play out over the course of seasons or you know, over the course of years. One of my favorite examples is of an historian named Inga Clendenin, who spent years you know, basically you know, raising her two boys. And then after that, after the, you know, the youngest was off at university, went back to doing serious research and in the span of a couple years, started turning out really, really remarkable books about Aztec history and sort of the conquest of the, sort of, of the Americas. I mean, just dazzling stuff that she says details partly were informed by her experience as a parent. There's stuff in there about the bodily experience of combat that she was aware of because of her experience as a mother. And this is stuff that she would not have been nearly as attuned to had those experiences and been as present in those experiences as sort of as, as, as she allowed herself. So I think that the, you know, maybe one of the positive lessons of that is that the stuff you're talking about is hard, but it's also stuff that potentially we can also learn really useful things from that can inform our work in ways that we don't expect. And that maybe not trying to divide our time super finely so that we are, you know, half with our kids and half with our clients, but a little more fully with the one or the other that that's actually maybe something that will pay off for everybody in the long run. But what you're describing is a difficult, endlessly changing kaleidoscope of scheduling issues and personal demands, and there is no single magic bullet for it. You know, mainly there is temporary solutions and endurance, and, you know, when none of that works, you know, a glass of wine <laughs> later. So. Damn it, I was hoping you were going to give me a magic bullet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I arranged this whole thing specifically for that. <laughs> the single biggest thing that I think people should recognize is that, you know, we're talking about issues that we think of principally as individual personal ones, work-life balance, sort of dealing with parenting and careers, that these are all things that afflict us in highly individual ways, and therefore we need to figure out our own solutions to them. And one of the things that the companies that... I study have taught me is that, yes, every life is different, but there is a lot of commonality in these challenges. And dealing with them together turns out to be incredibly powerful. One of the great things about the four-day week compared to you know, more traditional flexible work policies, for example, is that 
you know, when people go on part-time or they work from home, at least before the pandemic, even in well-meaning companies, there is this suspicion that, well, why does she get to go home early or is she really working when she's at home? Whereas the person who's working at home is often doing, you know, not only being as productive as they were in the office, but they're having to do extra labor in order to stay visible to their boss and do this extra work so that they're not inconveniencing the system. The system, which created a set of expectations that put them in a really difficult position in the first place by telling us all that you should parent as if you don't have a job, work as if you don't have children, do both to some impossibly high standard. And then if you fail according to these vague standards, it's entirely your fault. The four-day week breaks all of that because there is no suspicion about the person who starts their weekend on Thursday because everybody is doing that. And because everybody is doing that, you work together in order to make it happen, right? It turns the shorter work week from something that you are potentially having at someone else's expense to something that everybody generates together and gets the benefits of together. The lesson of that is that collective action and structural change are the most potent forms of self-care and that individual solutions, as useful as they can be for maybe helping us think a little differently about how we ought to structure our lives and place our priorities, are in the long run not as powerful as all of us recognizing that we face these challenges together and that we can actually solve them much more equitably and successfully if we work on them together. I think that's so critical. And I think it's, even though it sounds as though that's about organizations, I think that it is still hyper relevant for solo workers because we yes. have to not pretend that we're not doing these things. Like I'm really vocal mm -hmm. about the fact that I work four days and that I'm not available all the time. And I try and encourage other people to do the same because as long as we all pretend that we're all working all of the time, and, and some of mm -hmm. us are literally doing that as well, then all of this stuff just gets perpetuated. So I think it's crucial on that level. But I also think it's crucial that we de-individualize this as a problem as a whole, because one of the things that I worry a bit about the book that I've written and kind of books like it is that we put so much on the individual and we make it sound as though if you just make take the right actions have the right thoughts read the right books you can fix this problem when actually this stuff is structural and societal and cultural it's not necessarily down to an individual to change and actually i do think this is a really hopeful moment you know post pandemic i think that this has forced us to have conversations that we wouldn't have had before and for organizations to shift their practices and therefore for individuals who are contracted to organizations or remote for organizations or have them as clients or whatever it may be like all of this stuff is up for grabs so in many ways this is a moment where we could shed decades of malpractice as far as working hours goes so that that could be a yeah. brilliant thing Thank you so much for this conversation. It's so fascinating. Like I said at the beginning, your work has really impacted the way that I've thought about the stuff that I write about. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that and that you um, had a conversation with me today. So thanks very much. Oh, thank you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing your book out in the States. It is much needed and it'll be great to see it on our shores. Thank you. I'm terrified, but you know, all good. <laughs> <laughs>
I loved having a conversation with Alex in actual words rather than just um, on social media. That was such a pleasure. I guess I'm going to try and make my meetings shorter. As he says, nobody dislikes a short meeting. And I'm going to try and factor more rest into my working day. I think we all need to think of rest as something which goes on the to-do list rather than something you squeeze in if you have time because I don't think we ever have time, right? (laughs) Unless it goes on the list or into the routine, we're always going to feel like we don't have enough time to rest. So that's a conversation that we each need to have with ourselves because we need to rest and we deserve to. You have been listening to a Chalk and Blade original, The Solo Collective, with me, Rebecca Seal. Produced by Laura Hyde, with support from Fatuma Keira, original music by Dee Plume, and mixed by Alex Portfelix. Chalk and Blade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.